is an Odyssey original. This is KDX in Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. Tony Bennett, a music legend, dies at the age of 96. We'll go in depth into an extraordinary career. The long-awaited Barbie and Oppenheimer movies now in theaters, but they have competition from an unlikely film that's further dividing the right and the left. We start with the life, legacy, and influence of the great Tony Bennett. Tim Ray was the music director and pianist for Tony Bennett from 2016 until Bennett's retirement in 2021. He's also a professor at the Berkeley College of Music. Also with us is L.J. Williamson, an L.A.-based freelance music reviewer and a singer-songwriter. She wrote about Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga's performance at the Wilton. That was back in 2015. Both of you, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Tim, every, you know, performer who reaches superstardom has that something, and each one has a different something. What was that something that Tony Bennett had? Well, I think it was probably his ability to communicate, uh, connect with an audience and communicate the lyrics of these songs. He sang all these great songs that we know from films and Broadway shows. And of course, a lot of singers have have sung them over the years. But Tony had a unique way of presenting these songs. He had an amazing voice. A excellent sense of rhythm and just being able to tell a story through a song that I think was unmatched amongst anyone, including all the great singers of his generation. And uh, LJ talked about uh, Tony Bennett and uh, Lady Gaga performing together. What was it about Tony Bennett uh, that enabled this crossover between generations? Uh, Tony Bennett had a way of tapping into the emotional human universals that were being expressed by the songs that have become known collectively as the American Songbook. Uh, these songs aren't standards for uh, the, the reason of mindless repetition. They're standards because they tap into shared emotional experiences that are deeply resonant with people. And I think that Bennett's skill, he really excelled at bringing the, that emotional resonance front and center, never getting in front of it as a performing, as a performer, but bringing those emotions to the front. Tim, what were the influences, musical influences that created his unique style? Yes. Well, he um, he had two primary influences. One, of course, was opera singing, and he had an amazing uh, ability to project his voice like an opera singer. Um, but then, of course, he was also very invested in the jazz tradition and uh, particularly uh, improvisers. Some of his influences were, of course, some of the great jazz singers, Louis Armstrong, Billie Holiday. But he also was very influenced by jazz instrumentalists, you know, Lester Young and all the great uh, saxophone players and trumpet soloists from the big band era. And um, those were not only some of his biggest influences, but also his his greatest friends. And he really learned a lot from hanging out and listening to those those players. You know, Tim, uh, there have been some very great singers that did not really understand a lot about music. They just had this natural talent. Uh, to sing, but you speak of his jazz influences. Uh, how much did Tony understand what he was doing, even while at the same time making it sound so effortless? 
Yeah, that's a great question. He, um, I think his understanding was was very deep, and he had an amazing ear, and of course could hear all all the different uh, um, ways that songs could go. Uh, one of the the greatest joys in my experience from playing with him for those years was he would every night he would sing these songs that he sang for many many decades, but he would always do them a little bit differently. And again, that's in kind of in the jazz tradition. Most singers, you know, once they find a version of a song they like, they kind of tend to stick with that and sing it the same way over and over. And Tony never did that. He always had variations and, um, you know, was very much in the moment. And I think that's part of why why people love to come back and see him in live shows night after night. And of course, you know, uh, uh, you know, check out his recordings. LJ, I want to talk a bit about the performance that you wrote about in 2015 when he was with Lady Gaga. I, I didn't see that performance, but I've seen clips of him and Lady Gaga, and there seemed to be a very interesting chemistry between the two of them. It was almost like a father and daughter kind of thing. And I mean, they're both consummate performers, so one never knows how much of that is just good performance. Or do you think there was something about him that made him attractive to an entirely younger generation? Yeah, I think that part of the magic of Tony Bennett was that he had an uncanny ability to make you feel that you were hearing a song for the very first time. Even things were never wrote with him, even if it was a song that he's done a million times, like I left my heart in San Francisco. And um, one of the most startling examples for me was his version of For Once in My Life, which most people know from the very upbeat Stevie Wonder version but Tony Bennett's version is radically different, and he really brings out the frustration and anguish that undergirds that song, the idea of, oh, for once something went right for me. And it is an incredibly striking contrast, and again, it really highlights Bennett's reverence and interest in being true to the intentions of songwriters. L.J. Williamson, thank you, uh, freelance music reviewer in L.A. Also, Tim Ray, music director and pianist for Tony Bennett from 2016 until he retired in 2021. Right now, though, workers for the West Hollywood-based LGBTQ dating app Grindr are now trying to form a union. And they are the latest tech workers who are organizing in a sector where unions were, well, never really a thing in the not-so-distant past. Dan Ives is a tech analyst with Wedbush Securities. Dan, thanks for being with us. Yeah, great to be here. So when one thinks of organized labor in the past, one used to think of things like auto workers and maybe coal miners and that sort of thing, very blue-collar workers. But we are seeing more and more, are we not, uh, at least efforts to unionize in in tech places such as Grindr. It's not your grandfather's union, right? I mean, you're seeing a lot of changes. I mean, from Starbucks across the board. And I think this is something, especially in tech, that we're seeing across Silicon Valley, really across the country, especially the tech firms, the strong have gotten stronger, but employees are fighting back, and you're starting to see unions pop up more and more. 
I I don't think anybody's going to argue that we're not seeing something happen and the beginning of a wave, a a movement, labor uh, re-energizing itself in a way we haven't seen for quite some time. But is there concern about the backlash? You talk about uh, employers beginning to fight back. Do you think that uh, this will heat up into some kind of a war like we saw way back in the early days of the labor movements? Yeah, I think right now, I mean, employers still have the upper hand, especially intact. And I think we've seen that where there's some unionization efforts that have happened across TAC that have ultimately have failed. And, and, and I think it's a changing landscape. And I think the overarching issue with AI and some of these technologies, obviously we're seeing on you know, across from the writer strike, I mean, things are changing at a rapid pace and employers are fighting back. And this is something where, you know, this is not going to stop anytime soon. I think we're going to see more and more of these tensions rise. Yeah, because, you know, it's interesting because people have, I think, rightly or wrongly, this concept of, uh, you know, tech companies being really kind of cool and, you know, different than the old time companies and maybe therefore more open to organized labor. But that isn't necessarily true, is it? Oh, not at all. I mean, organized labor, labor within tech, that is not something they want to hear. And because you're not going to see it at Google and Microsoft and Amazon across the board. And I think that's something where you'll see these things pop up. But for now, I do think the bark's worse than the bite in terms of the unionization. But it just speaks to tensions, rising pressures. And what we're seeing really across the country in terms of employees fighting back. And this is something where... I think tech companies find themselves in a little unique position than maybe they ever thought they would a few years ago. Now, we did reach out to the union that's uh, organizing Grinder workers. We have not heard back from them. Uh, Grinder, though, the company, sent a statement uh, from a spokesperson that said, uh, quote, we respect our employees' rights and points of view, and we will continue to work together to make Grinder a great place to work for all, unquote. Uh, that's kind of boilerplate uh, from Grinder. Do you think that uh, Grinder is one of those that's really going to push back hard against any efforts for workers to unionize? Well, I think they'll push back hard with the rest of tech. It's not just about grinder. It's about what's happening across the tech landscape. And I think it's also one where others in the industry are watching this, too. You get one union that pops up, then you could have more, right? And I think that's something where this is, you know, it's a line in the sand, ultimately. And I would really, I wouldn't expect them to have a soft stance here. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, workers at Grinder are... Uh... Trying to form a union, Dan Ives, tech analyst with Wedbush Securities, our guest. Coming up, Barbie the movie is now out in theaters. Now, if you want to look like her, I don't know why, but if you want to look like her, you can, <laughs> sort of. We are going to talk about a couple of Barbie-inspired cosmetic procedures right now though speaking of movies there is a hit film that's taken the movie industry by some surprise it's called the sound of freedom it stars jim caviezel and it is not without some controversy though and it's uh, divided up along that familiar dividing line of this country today the right and the left here explain eric mitchell republican strategist and president and ceo of life flip media thanks for joining us Thanks for having me on, guys. So very quickly, uh, for, for someone who may not be completely familiar with what the uh, film is, why is there a divide over it? I actually don't know. I wish I had the answer for this because the movie's basis is on human trafficking, which is a huge problem 
in our country as globally, right? Human trafficking is something that we've been talking about. You could go back and look on in media coverage as of like 2016. It's been heavily talked about. This movie came out and suddenly it's defying everybody. Disney had the rights to it. Mind you, a few years ago, they had the rights to it, decided not to do it. Private studio out of Utah picked it up and it came out. A great movie, a terrific movie covering human trafficking. As somebody with young daughters, it really hit me right in the feels. But for some reason, it's divided our country politically. But we do this over everything, mind you. I mean, even the PGA Live Golf merger has caused a political divide. But this movie, which human trafficking, both sides should be amen. We should need to deal something about it. We are suddenly divided about an issue that we should all probably be completely united on. Well, is that because, Eric, that even though the, the film, as I understand it, I haven't seen it yet, but as I understand it, while it doesn't uh, talk about, for example, QAnon, there are people on the left who feel that it kind of hits those notes, and that's why it appeals to people on the right. Uh, I mean, I wish I could say that, but that's the same thing as people saying there's racist lyrics and racist undertones under Jason Aldean. I mean, I don't see it. But again, I watched the movie and I wasn't looking for that. I guess I'm not in that boat. I look for the QAnon or any kind of crazy alt left things when I watch movies. I watched them to see what they are. It was excellent. You know, it's a great movie, just like Oppenheimer that comes out today. Another one of those movies that you go, oh, I'm watching it because I want to see what makes this movie great. I am a cinephile. I love good movies. So that's what I looked at it. So looking at for that, I guess I'm not the guy because when I was watching it and I asked my family who we all went and watched it together, none of us were like, did you pick up anything? And my daughter goes to college and she doesn't always agree politically with me. And she didn't see any of those undertones in there. So it's kind of weird that the left picked up on that. It was like, nope, this movie's bad. It's QAnon. Yeah, but based on my research, I haven't really come across anybody on the left who said the movie is bad, uh, per se, that uh, human trafficking is not a not an issue that is a very serious problem. Both uh, uh, Democrats and Republicans have uh, led a long battle against that. I think the concern, based on my reading, is uh, that it is uh, QAnon, Jason, given that the person the film is based on is kind of QAnon adjacent himself, uh, and there are some issues with some of his stories and the story of the organization that the film is kind of based on of, of uh, let's say, stretching the truth a little bit with some of its claims. While no one is saying that, oh, no, it's human trafficking, we support that. I don't think anybody is saying that at all. I think uh, the issue might be there that now that everything is politically tense these days, they look at who the film is based on and go, well, it's coming from that viewpoint. I agree with you. You know, I think everybody does that with every film. I mean, I've seen negative spin on the Barbie movie, right? Like, to me, not a movie that I would look to find a political undertone or anything extreme about it. Yeah, Ted, Ted Cruz says hi. <laughs> of course he does. Ted, and I live in Texas. I can tell you Ted says a lot of weird things. But again, it's just, I don't know. I think politics jumps into everything we have, especially as being a big sports guy. I look at that too, and I go, why is politics always involved in things we're supposed to like? I mean, they do this all the time. People want to divide Tim, uh, Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg as a veteran who served in the Marine Corps. I love what they do for our World War II and Korea veterans, but nobody does that. They're like, oh, they voted for this person. I, I don't agree with who they vote for, but what they do for causes I totally believe in. But I mean, I don't look into movies the way other people do. Uh, I mean, I would like to see mainstream media pick up and talk about Songs of Freedom because the money it's making and the what it's doing in theaters, it's not getting a lot of coverage. Now, the right is covering it. All the conservative outlets are. But you're not seeing the other outlets doing it. Instead, they're talking negative of it and making, you know, looking at all the bad things instead of what the message is for it. And I think that's what we need to look through. 
But sometime we're going to finally need to do that in this country. And somebody who's a Republican strategist, I'm just waiting for the day where we can kind of look united again and not have to be a terrorist attack like 9-11 to make us all be united again. All right, there you go. Eric Mitchell is a Republican strategist, president and CEO of Life Flip Media, talking about the movie The Sound of Freedom. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, the wait is finally over to see Oppenheimer. And in case you don't know, if you've been hiding under a rock for many months, the movie is about scientist J. Robert Oppenheimer and his development of the atomic bomb. But there's an untold story regarding the bomb. It's testing in New Mexico and those impacted by that testing. Elisa Lynn Valdez is an author and journalist. Her recent tweets about atomic testing fallout have now gone viral. Elisa, thanks for being with us. Thanks for inviting me. So in a nutshell, tell us what what your concern is, not really with the film, right, but it's about uh, the the fallout, literally, of the creation of the atomic bomb and the testing of it. Yeah. Um, so my tweet was not in any way a condemnation or a cancellation of the, the Oppenheimer film. It was a personal tweet that I didn't expect to go viral. And it was just expressing a weariness with the buzz around Oppenheimer, because for me personally, and for my family, and for many people here in New Mexico, uh, seeing any kind of reference or, or film about that event is, is very personal. My mother was 18 months old when the first nuclear weapon in the world was detonated. And that was detonated by the U.S. government on its own soil. And many of its own people were in the fallout zone from that and suffered greatly from that. Um, and my mom was one of them. She was 18 months old at the time, 87 miles from the Trinity site where they exploded that first bomb to test it. Nobody was warned that this was going to be done. My great grandfather was a sheep farmer in the area, and he remembers telling, you know, he told the family he thought the sun had come up twice that day. And my mom has suffered a number of health problems all her life, as have, ha as have all of the people she grew up with. Of the 21 girls in her graduating high school class, 17 had leukemia. Um, my mom is one of the only ones left, and she's had thyroid cancer. And just eight years ago, we found a massive brain tumor the size of an orange in her left frontal lobe that had probably been growing there for more than 30 years. You know, it does come from a time in which there was a lot of secrecy uh, involving things. We were in the middle of a war, uh, one of the biggest wars the world had ever seen. Uh, that said, there was also a lot of theorizing about what this bomb would do. And while some scientists had an understanding there was going to be some radiation, uh, radiation coming out of this bomb, some, some maybe uh, something called fallout, they weren't quite sure uh, just how much that would entail. I do recall, if I re read my history correctly, that uh, after they detonated the bombs in Japan, uh, they began to see the effects of radiation, which came in after, and they really kind of kept a lid on that because I think the feeling was, and you can tell me if you get that feeling too, uh, based on what you know and your family history, that the government kind of kept the lid on that part of the story because uh, we intended, fully intended to keep testing bombs. Not only that, but the Albuquerque Journal newspaper won a Pulitzer Prize some years back for reporting on another thing that the U.S. government did to my mother, 
which was they wanted at that same time in the mid 40s, they were curious about the effects of radiation on people and they decided to give radiated orange juice to New Mexico school children in rural, predominantly Hispanic, Latino, whatever word you want to use, areas. So uh, my mother's parents were very conservative Republican ranchers. They wanted to be supportive. They signed off on this waiver for what was called nutritional research at the time. So my mom, every Wednesday for weeks and weeks, was given radiated orange juice by nurses who would come into her school. So that was done. There's an element, uh, definitely an element of racism. I don't know whether the film covers it, but um, I did see a New York Times review of the film that said something to the effect that Oppenheimer oversaw this, you know, scientific group in a basically, you know, desolate, abandoned part of New Mexico. That's not true. The, much of the land that was taken for the Los Alamos labs belonged to what we, we say here, Hispano here, Hispano farmers and ranchers who'd had that land for centuries. They were given less than a day to get off of that land. And there was nowhere for them to go. They were, you know, land rich and money poor. If they didn't get their livestock off, the livestock were shot and bulldozed in front of them. And then the men who were left penniless, uh, many of them went back to work for the labs. And the Hispanic men in our area were hired to work for Oppenheimer's team with beryllium. And they were not given PPE, protective gear. And there are photos of the white supervisors standing with these men, and they all have full moon suits on, basically. And so you have a whole generation of men in Chimayo, Española, uh, Los Alamos area who died of beryllosis. Alisa, uh, is your mom angry at the U.S. government or you? No, my mom, it's really funny. And that's part of the problem. There's 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 a group called Downwinders. There's a woman named Tina Cordova who's been fighting for everyone. But if you get to know rural New Mexicans, being a farmer or a rancher in a desert creates a very fatalistic, accepting and tolerant mindset. So you have people who know what happened, but they don't want to cause problems. And my mom is one of those people. Um, so there, it's been actually difficult to get, we call the viejitos, the little old people, to, to stand up for themselves here. They don't. They're, they, they're willing to endure a lot, which is a good quality, but it's also a bad quality when something like this happens. So no, my mother is one of the most patriotic people I know. Um, and it's, it's, it's too oversimplistic, I think, to say, are you mad at the U.S. government? There are many different parts of the U.S. government. And this is something that happened at a time, you know, none of the people who were in charge then are in charge now. So I, I don't want to... Should there be some reparations? Well, many people think there should. And and, and uh, Tina Cordova's group, the Downwinders, actually have finally gotten some traction. Martin Heinrich, um, our representative here from New Mexico, He's been very open and, and she's been getting, you know, going to hearings in Washington. And there is some talk of reparations now. I don't I don't think that has happened yet, though. Uh, Lisa Lynn Valdez, author and journalist, uh, recent tweets about atomic testing fallout have gone viral in the wake of the movie Oppenheimer. Lots of people are lining up even now to watch Barbie, and some of them may end up making appointments for cosmetic procedures soon thereafter. I'm talking about procedures like Barbie Botox and Barbie Arms. Barbie what? Botox. No, no, Barbie Arms. arms. Like an, an arm? We're going to find out.
Okay. Uh, are becoming more and more popular. With us now, Dr. Mariana Bousseau, Beverly Hills Board Certified Dermatologist. Thanks for joining us. Oh, hi. It's nice to join you. Thank you so much for asking. So, uh, Barbie, uh, Barbie Botox, I think I've got an idea what that would be, but Barbie Arms, how are people and why are people getting Barbie Arms and what is it? Well, it's a new trend of having more feminine arms. And more feminine arms means slimmer and less defined. It's coming from Asia, and it's really a new trend of, you know, body recontouring. Do you, as a as a, a doctor, understand why uh, a person would want to look like a doll? <laughs> well, probably that would be a little too much. But having slimmer eye, arms with less defined muscles, more feminine, I can understand that. And so I'm, I'm not opposed to that. Uh, what about Barbie Botox? Excuse me? Uh, Barbie Botox is apparently uh, something Botox, people yeah. are doing, yeah. Right. So uh, the way to make the arms slimmer in a simple manner is to debulk the muscles. And that we can do with just a few injections of Botox on the muscle, on the deltoid muscle, on the shoulder, and the triceps. So that would debulk the muscle, but we still have the function. So the, the, the muscle still functions. But it will be less volume and less definition, so it makes it more feminine. If we're going to take it a step further, then it will be liposuction, and then it will be the area even more, more slim, but Botox should be enough. I guess what I'm trying to figure out is what is the difference between a patient coming in and saying, I want Botox, and a patient coming in and saying they want Barbie Botox. Is there, <laughs> is, is there a different look? Definitely. Uh, body recontouring through Botox has been done for many decades. The most common is being performed on the face. Uh, with people that grind, that their face becomes very white because of muscle growth. We trim the face through doing Botox. Also, people have been looking for less defined calves, so we've been injecting Botox on the calves to give a different look, a slimmer look. Now, this is a new step, which is to have less defined arms, and that will be the Barbie Botox, Barbie arm Botox. Uh, at what point does someone come to you wanting to get one of these Barbie procedures, do you say, uh, that's not healthy, don't do that? As long as we don't interfere with function, uh, to reduce the volume of, of a muscle is really not, it's more cosmetic without altering anything of the function or the structure. So it's, it's okay. Um, it's not taking this too far. It's, it's relatively simple and safe, as long as we stay within you know, low doses, which is what is required. Do you ever say to a patient, you know, the only way you're going to look like Barbie is if we take you all apart and reassemble you? <laughs> I haven't been to that, to that level. However, we have ways to guide patients into what is right for them. 
and what is safe for them without crossing any boundaries. So there are ways to uh, sometimes to advise patients. Sometimes patients are looking for a specific look because they think that that's the right look. And we can change their mind without confronting them. And usually that works. I, I have one, one other quick question. Barbie, of course, uh, has, you know, uh, the Ken doll to match. Uh, do guys come in to you and want the Ken Botox or the the Ken arms <laughs> or whatever? Well, fortunately, um, the cosmetic ideas have changed. Uh, it's no longer Barbie what everyone wants to be. It's uh, it's a little more variations. So exotic looks are more uh, preferable these days, and not just the traditional, you know, blonde blue eyes. Uh, so no, the taste is changing. Definitely, is changing. It's becoming wider. All right, uh, Beverly Hills board-certified dermatologist, Dr. Mariana Bousseau. And Charles, you know, I would wait for someone to go into a doctor and say, mm. yeah, I want a Ken and Barbie treatment, but I want you to make it so that I can fit inside a Barbie dollhouse. Yeah, you'd can have you to, do that? Yeah, you'd have yeah. to lose a lot of weight. <laughs> a lot of weight. Limbs all cut <laughs> off. A lot of height. Yeah. <laughs> That's it for KNX In-Depth. We're going to be back on Monday.